Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Brad Blackwood, who is a Grammy and Pensado award-winning mastering engineer based out of Memphis, Tennessee. He runs Euphonic Masters, and he has worked with a ton of amazing major artists, including Korn, Maroon 5, Lamb of God, Alison Krauss and Union Station, Black Eyed Peas. Like He has a massive, massive list of clients. And in this chat, we have a really great conversation all about the process of mastering what goes into it, what should someone be looking out for in a mastering engineer, and we also get into Brad's process of mastering and his philosophies behind it, and he's got a lot of really interesting outlooks on the act of just listening to music and how to listen critically, how to trust your monitors, and even how to work really fast. And I think there's going to be some stuff in this episode that's going to really surprise you when you hear just how fast Brad is able to master a song. But when you hear his reasons for why he can do it, I think it'll really make a lot of sense for you. And it's definitely something that you should strive for with your own masters and your own mixes as well. So with all of that said, let's just jump right into the episode because I know that there's so much good stuff in here that you're definitely going to love. So here's my interview with Brad Blackwood. Brad Blackwood, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. For people who might not know your background and how you got started in music and ultimately to where you are today in an amazing mastering facility there, you know, can you give us that story of how you got into it? Do you want the short version or the, the TLDR version? Or I, I love the long versions because the long versions always have so much good stuff that comes from it. All right. Well, it's not interesting per se, but... Uh, you know, I was in when I was in high school. Some of my best friends were in a band together, and um, I didn't play an instrument, um, but I loved hanging out with them. And they, their mom was super cool. In retrospect, she let them use their two car garage as like a rehearsal slash recording studio, and um, so we had you know carpet on the walls and just that whole thing. Not knowing what we were doing, but four track you know cassette recorder, and I kind of became sort of the recording engineer for them doing demos and stuff like that. I mean, it wasn't anything special at all, but that's where I kind of got interested in. I thought this is really cool. I mean, I, I like working with these guys and being around music and so on and so forth. Um, I grew up in Orlando, which of course is winter park is a suburb of Orlando and that's where full sale is. And so I knew a little bit about that, went and toured it and really liked the school, but this is still 19, probably 90, 91. Um, this is still a time when, if you were going to go to college, you went to college, you didn't go to a school like full sale because at that time it wasn't accredited like it is now. So it was literally like a, just a trade school or something like that. You know, credits don't transfer that sort of a thing. So my parents were a bit resistant of it. They were a little bit old school. Um, so I ended up going off to college for a few years, doing some pre-med stuff and, um, or not pre-med, but it was, it was studying physical therapy, but um, really wasn't feeling it. And, you know, I was kind of getting burned out called my parents one day and my mom was like, well, maybe this is what you're supposed to do is you know, go to full sale. So I moved back to Florida, went through that and um, really, really enjoyed it. But, I mean, for the first time in my life, I was just absolutely loving studying and being in school and learning stuff and just every, every day, even when we were doing stuff like Simpty, which, you know, it's like, who cares about Simpty? But that was, the, even that class was really cool to me. So I um, graduated, um, I was like third in my class. And the way they did it at the time was the top 
the way you graduated sort of was how you got shots at certain jobs. And there was this job opening at Ardent Studios here in Memphis, which is a pretty old facility and you know, known for mainly rock and stuff like that. And I kind of wanted that gig, but the guy in front of me actually interviewed for it and got the job. Um, and then he had to back out because his wife wouldn't move up here and so on and so forth. So they, I ended up getting the job at Ardent and started off as a night guy, taking out the trash, answering phones, just worked my way up. And, um, Got into it from there. I mean, you know, how I got into mastering is also a bit of a complicated story. I never really planned on that. I thought I was going to be like a mix engineer. That's what I always wanted to do. And um, they uh, bought a Sadie digital audio workstation back in probably 98. And um, I decided I was just going to take that box over. That would be my way to get more work done was just become the guru on the Sadie and uh, at least at the studio. And that's what I did. And so I started doing lots of digital editing, which is still kind of in its infancy, you know, um, and uh, started assembling things for people like records. The next thing you know, is like, well, can you do a little EQ? And, and it just kind of happened. I, I never really planned on becoming a mastering guy, but it just sort of happened. And I enjoyed it and seemed to be pretty good at it. And so there we are. <laughs> I love how that happens, right? Sometimes it's just like, you know, the it, someone just gets you to do something for them and then that ends up becoming the thing you do. Yeah, it was completely unplanned. I never had any dream of being a mastering guy. I would be lying if I said otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's really interesting to hear because, you know, I think that there are a lot of you know, a lot of these big production schools, they always talk about like mixing and recording and it, there's so much focus on like those stages and, and not necessarily on the mastering side of it. So I do feel like a lot of people that get into the mastering world kind of just like fall into it as a byproduct of mixing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know then, like having had that experience now uh, as a mixing engineer who got into mastering, do you feel like you need to learn how to mix before you can become a mastering engineer? No, I mean, I probably didn't make it clear, but I was never really, I mean, I was just a couple of years out of school. I graduated in 96 and around 98 is when I started mastering. So it was like, I had very little time actually mixing. Uh, I I couldn't mix my way out of it. I, I, I could probably get signal through a large format console, but that's about it at this point. You know, it's, I, so I don't think I that helped me as much as what really helped me was spending almost seven years in a place like Arden, where there was a bunch of really talented staff engineers, and those guys were, you know, became sort of sonic mentors for me. And and just hearing, we had a really unusual group of guys there in that they were really enormously talented, some of them, and they had stayed there instead of moving on and, and building their own studio or so on and so forth, for the most part. And so we had these really incredible guys like John Fry, the owner, and John Hampton um, that were, you know, Grammy winners and had cut these incredible records over the years. Um, and, you know, I could be in there mastering and John Hampton would walk by and be like, oh, it sounds a little chesty around 700, you know, and I didn't even, okay, so I'll go in and start playing with it. And Hey, wow, it does sound better if I pull that back half DB. And, uh, just that all the time, um, that was really the biggest thing for me. Um, I don't really, yeah, I would never call myself a mixer. I, I don't think I had enough experience to even claim that then much less now. <laughs> I love that though, but that that's interesting because you know I do feel like I I I somewhat agree that like you don't necessarily need to know how to mix because the mixing is really like the granular stuff and the mastering is like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna really dumb it down with this explanation of it for people listening but like it, you know it is kind of the equivalent of like turning up the bass and treble on your car car stereo that kind of thing right it's like exactly. you're kind of just listening to like whatever's pleasing to the ear so in that sense like yeah mastering can be a, a thing to 
to learn without needing all the the granular side of it. But that being said, mastering is also a game of subtleties often, you know, like and 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 that that also varies from mastering engineer to mastering engineer. There's some people that really believe that, you know, the subtleties are where it's at and you shouldn't go, you know, more than a few dB of boost here and there, right? And then there's other people who just maybe do their own thing and make it really extreme. So where what's your philosophy on that? I, um, my goal every time is for, and this is my favorite compliment that I get from a mixer is, Hey, it sounds just like my mix only better. So I probably lean towards subtlety. Uh, that's my default, but I'll do whatever it takes to make it sound good. So if it needs to, you know, usually it's little touches here and there, nips and tucks. Sometimes I have to get out sort of the big tools and really hammer away at something and make radical changes, uh, in order to um, to make it really sound the way I think it it can sound and should sound um, or sound good to me, and that's so I, I default towards trying to be subtle. I want to do as little as possible while making it sound as good as it can, but I'm definitely not afraid to do whatever it takes. You know, absolutely. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to leave stuff on the table just in the name of being subtle. Like, well, I can only do a half dB or a dB of boost or cut. You know, it's like if it takes six dB, then it takes six. That's pretty rare, to be fair, that I have to do that. But I mean, if that's what it takes to make it really sound good, and it's, and it does sound good, then yeah, okay, let's go. For sure. Do you find that you go more extreme with people who maybe are more inexperienced or less experienced engineers? Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, yeah. The the, the experienced mixers I get, it's always. Not always, but a vast majority of time, it's uh, I'll hear something, I'll address it in a way, and then I'll go back and forth and vacillate on whether or not is it better or is it just different, you know. And that's where I'm trying to, to trying to figure out is it making the song better, or is it just sound different, or, or you know what I'm saying. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've, there's a few guys out there that I get mixes from that it's sometimes difficult to find a way to improve it, you know. But I mean, that's not really the job. The job isn't processing. Process. I've always said processing is the byproduct of the listen, and the listen is really what mastering is all about. It's 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 a, it's a new set of ears that is hopefully uh, objective. You know that hasn't been married to the song, hasn't heard that the the warts in the in the in the way it's played or whatever over and over and over again. Because you know good and well that if you listen to something and it's got too much bass, you know after you've listened to it five ten times, especially in a row, it doesn't sound like it's got too much bass anymore for the most part. It's like you just your brain equalizes it out and it's all. And so giving it to a master engineer in a new room, that listen is really the critical part. That you, it's really hard for an engineer to do that like the mixer to do that in the same room that he worked in and master it. There are guys that do that and they put out good records. Um, but I'm just saying, I think that the value that a separate mastering engineer brings is the listen. And then if there, if there is processing that needs to be done, so be it. I've actually had a handful of records in my career where I literally didn't do anything to any of the songs. They, they were, they just came in. I couldn't make them better it's still a mastered product, right? Cause it went through and, and I, you know, I made sure that it was going to translate properly and, and so on and so forth. But, um, those are pretty rare. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's really interesting. You, you kind of brought up a good point there about the, the listening and the processing is kind of just part of the job, you know, and, and then you also talked about translation as, as well in, in those cases where you're getting really good mixes. So, what do you see as the role of a mastering engineer in in general? Like, because because I do feel like there's there are there are some differing opinions of like you know what it entails, and a lot of people I think just focus entirely on the audio side of it. But I know that there's more to it as well, right? So maybe you can elaborate on and kind of like what that mastering role looks like from an all encompassing point of view. Well, uh, the fir- first and foremost, you want I want to make everything sound just as good as it can. 
I mean, that's uh, that seems pretty obvious, but I mean, that's that's the first goal. Um, that goes hand in hand with translation, you know. Um, and nowadays, I think translation is probably more of a difficult target than it's ever been in history, just because there are so many more listening environments uh, than we've ever had before. And um, and hi-fi or the enjoyment of hi-fi listening has. Um, it's not as important to as many people as it used to be. So like when I was a kid and I was a teenager, for example, and you'd go to the mall, you know, or wherever, and you'd go to the music store or the, you know, the stereo shops, um, they had like real, they didn't have very much in the way of like cheap audio equipment. It was all, uh, I mean, they had inexpensive stuff, but it wasn't cheaply made or whatever it was for the most part, the stuff was really good and people wanted, you know, hi-fi stereo speakers in their house and so on and so forth. And um, I feel like with modern sort of listening, whether it's because of your phone or or streaming or whatever, um, the portability of music has uh, made it where it's the hi-fi aspect of it is maybe less important than just having it with you all the time. What that means is there's so many ways to hear music now, whether it's earbuds or mono on your phone speaker or whatever. And we still have to try to make it sound as good as it can, you know, in each one of those things. So that's, that's actually a huge one. And of course, there's also stuff like metadata and, and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, that's just the technical aspect of it. That's pretty easily handled, but those are the two big ones for me. I want to make everything sound as good as it can. And also I want to make it sound as good as it can everywhere that it's played. And if I can do that, then that's 95% of my job. That's fair. And it's interesting too, because you brought up the idea of translation and, you know, how, these days, there there is so much, uh, so many different types of listening devices to, to to listen to this music on. So, on the on the topic of translation, how do you go about making sure that these mixes are translating? Because because you obviously don't have a gazillion sets of speakers at your studio to really compare to, right? So I got one set, yeah, one set of speakers. Yeah, exactly. So so so, what are you doing to to feel confident that when it, when it leaves your studio that it's going to translate? This is the kind of answer that I absolutely hate when people give, but honestly, it's, I've got, I don't know, I've never even thought about how many thousands of hours I've got listening to these speakers in this room um, and then listening to product outside of that in other ways, you know, other places over the years, but it's hours and hours and hours and years and years and years of listening in this room with these speakers, you know, and, and just knowing exactly what I'm hearing. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to go out of the car and listen to it. And how's it going to translate? I just know, you know, um, and that's, I, I hate answers like that because you want something that's like quantifiable, but it really is just a matter of like, you got to spend time, you know, I mean, there's probably some tricks where you could take a mono speaker and that's just mid range. Like you'd roll off the top, roll off the bottom, you know, that kind of a thing. And just listen to the mid range and make sure that it sounds balanced and good and so on and so forth. But I mean, you know, the modern cars, a lot of them have like really incredible reproduction, like subwoofers and so on and so forth, just from the factory. Um, and so you can't just focus on just the mid range anymore, like you could maybe 30 years ago. So I, I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, a lot of mastering to me, a lot of, a lot of the experience or a lot of the things that you gain that you get good at, it's just because of experience and time. There's no, there's no shortcuts, I think, for a lot of it. 
Absolutely. And I'm sure that, you know, with that time and that experience, a lot of it just has to do, like, like you said, you're, you're just listening to so much music on those speakers. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also important for people to hear that and know that it's not just about listening to or listening to music you're working on, because you could be you could be making something sound horrible and constantly listening to so horrible quality mixes. And, you know, so like that's not an easy way to learn your speakers there. Like but like listening to listening to material that it has maybe been mastered already and that like you can you can trust that like this stuff has been uh you know this stuff translates already or stuff that you're already really comfortable with and songs that you know really well like is that something that you do a lot do you find yourself listening to a lot of reference tracks oh yeah in fact uh i start my day every day i've, I've posted this on social media for a couple of years i've, I've stopped recently over the last year or so but i would i do a more what i call a morning listen and so when i get to the studio first thing um i have the amps set uh with an amp uh, on my phone. So about an hour before I leave for the studio, I'll turn on the amps. So they're warmed up when I get here and I'll come into the studio and I'll pick an album, whether it's vinyl or it's, um, you know, something streaming or whatever. And I'll listen down to the album top to bottom, uh, while I'm answering emails that morning, returning phone calls, those sorts of things before I start my day, you know, the actual work day of listening. Um, and it's just running the whole time. And sometimes I'll find myself stopping and listening to another, the same song like five times in a row. Cause I, you know, I'm really getting it at that moment, but that's my morning listen. And it's just a way to kind of wake up, but it's always, not always, but it's almost always something that I haven't done. It's just something else that's out there, whether it's an old record or new record or whatever. Um, it's just a way to hear other things in here and, and see how they, see how they translate. I love that. That's such a great, great idea. Because, yeah, I, I, like I said earlier, I think that there's a lot of people that a lot of people don't even listen to music on their studio monitors. They're just listening to the stuff they're working on. So they don't really know like what the goal should be. Right. So that def that definitely makes it a lot harder. Um, and I love that idea of just like just forcing yourself to like listen to some music and just calibrating your ears that way. I think it's super important. It's also a good way to wake up because I found that in the mornings, um, and if I have if I don't do that, if I were to walk in and just immediately start working, when I listen to it later, there's always not always, but there's usually something that I go like, huh, that, that's a little off from what I would normally have done or what I, you know, what I like, it's like my ears just haven't settled in yet. Like maybe, maybe I've trained them to do this because of how long I've done this. I don't know, but it just feels like a good idea. I don't listen loud. It's, you know, probably like 70, 75 DB. It's, it's relatively quiet by most people's standards, but it's just enough that I can sit there and just feel it and enjoy it, you know, while I'm hammering out emails and stuff. And um, yeah, it's just, by the time I start working, I just kind of feel like I, I my ears are awake and everything's ready to roll. I love that. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, well, another thing I that I wanted to ask you is like, obviously, I can see your your studio right now, and you got this beautiful space. And a lot of big mastering mastering facilities are beautifully designed and acoustically treated really, really well. And you know, do you think that mastering needs to be done in a facility like that, or can people do it from home? Because you know, this on the topic of listening to your speakers and learning how to trust them, could anyone just do that at their home and, and feel confident in, in their translation from there? I think I, I think it's absolutely possible. In fact, I know it's been done, so I know it's possible. Um, I think that, like anything else, uh, there's a reason why all of everybody that I know that's a you know a successful master engineer has a great space and great speakers um, and lots of acoustic treatment and it's well designed and so on and so forth. Um, and that's because it's 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 not it's almost like cheating. It's not cheating, but I mean it's almost like that. It's like that's when you have when you can remove barriers so that you don't have to think about or your mind is you don't have to engage your brain and have this filter in place like oh yeah 
it's usually boomy at this frequency, or it's, this seems a little bright, but that's the way these speakers are or whatever. When you don't have to do that and you can just concentrate, you're far more efficient. And I think you're less likely to make mistakes. It's very possible to do it yourself in, in a less than ideal acoustic environment with less than ideal speakers. Like I said, it's been done before. Um, I think there's a greater chance that you're going to miss something or a greater chance that you're you know, not going to hear something in the right way um, in that environment. And I think that's why, like I said, just about everybody I know that's that, that masters records professionally has has a good studio, you know, a nice studio. That makes sense for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And it's a good point to, to note that, you know, people need to be listening in spaces that they trust and, and spaces that, you know, make it make it easy to hear things accurately. Um, and uh, another thing that that I think this kind of ties into is the idea of y- you have you have a pretty diverse clientele. And you work on lots of different genres of music. And I feel like when it comes to different genres of music, there are lots of, you know, th- there's a wide range of like kind of the expectations of a genre. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you agree with that. Maybe you don't. I'm not curious. Oh, absolutely. No question. So so I think that having a space that you absolutely trust and that like, you know, like kind of the, um, you know, the limits of that room. And you also know, like the speakers really well. You, you can you can adapt to those different genres really well because, you know, kind of what's too far for your room and, and all that kind of stuff and feel confident in in what you're hearing. Right. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's also that goes back to like the morning listen. There's a lot of times I'll know if I'm working on something that is a genre that maybe I haven't worked on in a while, or I'm not super familiar with, I'll, a lot of times for the morning listen, I'll try to pick something that's going to be more in that vein, you know, so that it's like, okay, I, I know what this feels like now. If I'm doing a, a reissue of an album that was done 40 years ago, well, I may listen to maybe not that album because I don't want it to color the way I'm going to listen to it today, but I may listen to something from that same era. just sort of like, okay, what was the vibe like then? You know, how, how does this feel compared to today's production? Of course. Yeah, of course. Love it. Yeah. And I, that, that's a great, another great way to just calibrate, just like listen to something that sounds like the genre you're working on, like kind of makes the most sense, right? If you're working on a rock thing, you're not going to put on like a hip hop thing where the bass is completely out of whack, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that, I mean, you, you do have a very diverse list of clientele and you've worked with people like Corn, Backstreet Boys, Maroon 5, Keith Urban, like that is kind of all over the place and it's super interesting. And, and I'm always, I'm always really impressed by that because, because I feel like I always hear people talk about the idea of like niching down and like, you know, being known for like one sound. And even before we started recording, we were talking about how like you were saying you kind of wanted to be known as the rock guy. And now you have like this wide, diverse clientele. Yeah. So, so I'm curious to know, like looking back at it now, like what's your philosophy on diversifying when it comes to mastering? Like, do you think that it is good to have that diversification or w- if, if you could, would you rather work on rock music all day? Um, if I had to pick one genre. It would, and that's all I could ever do. It would be rock, absolutely. Um, I like the diversity. I like having, um, I like two things about it. I like um, never knowing exactly what I'm getting into until the next day. You know, like I don't, I, I do a lot of big like rock records, heavy metal records, things like that. Um, and that's, I love doing that. That's great. I, that, that's kind of my jam. But at the same time, it's nice when I walk in and I literally don't know. A lot of times I have no idea what the art is that I'm going to be working on that day. You know, you can't tell by the artist's name. You can't tell. And I hit play. And sometimes I am absolutely astonished at what comes out of the speakers. Like I hadn't, if I had to guess, it would have been completely wrong. You know, like I had no idea I was working on this today. Um, and that's fun. Uh, at the same time, I kind of, honestly, it's sort of a, a where it's sort of as a badge of honor that I can do a lot of different things um, because they all have sort of different requirements. And I think it speaks to your ability to, to listen carefully and, and, 
and know what's important in each sort of music, musical style, maybe, um, if you can do that, if you can wear those, those different hats, depending on what's coming through. Um, I just, I, I do, I wear that as a, as a sense of pride. I mean, it's like a, a bluegrass and metal and like literally one year, I think I was up for like for some Grammy award. I wasn't, but there were some Grammy awards up and it was like the bluegrass, a pop and a metal record like that year or, you know, the two year period. And it was like, that's kind of cool. Uh, I like that, but yeah, I mean, I'm really at my heart. I'm probably a rock guy more than anything else. That's that's what I. That's, and when I first started mastering, like I told you before, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be known as the rock guy. I thought that's cool. Um, and it didn't go that way. I mean, I did a lot of rock records, but there was just stuff coming in from all over, all, you know, all across the genres. And it, I, I'm not going to turn stuff away if it's good music. You know, I just enjoy working on it, and now I enjoy that. I enjoy that diversity. It's fun. For sure. And it's it's interesting, too, because mastering, I feel, is, you know, there, there's like those concepts of like um, high volume, low dollar clients. And then there's the opposite of it as well. Right. Like low volume, but high, high pricing or whatever. And and so the idea is that, you know, like when you're a mastering engineer, a lot of it is you're working on a lot of small projects. You're working on single songs. Often you're, you're you have to bring in more clientele than, say, maybe a. Uh, mixing engineer who's taking on only album projects or that kind of thing, right? Sure. Um, and so I'm sure that the diversification in the genres you work in, that helps you with that respect as well, because, you know, you have you have a larger pool of clients that you can work with, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, no question about that. That's, that's, you know, and during the COVID shutdown, you know, when everything was locked down and I... I used to post a lot about what I'm working on and stuff on, you know, on Insta and Facebook. And, and I kind of stopped doing that because I felt, now I just kind of select projects every once in a while and post them um, because there were a lot of guys, I mean, a lot of established master engineers that were listing their gear for sale and were, you know, I, I know for a fact, we're like driving Uber and stuff like that. Um, and we were able to, it got tight, but we were able to squeak by and still had clients, you know, calling on us um, from not only all different genres, but all over the world. Um, even during the tightest part of that. So uh, yeah, that was a blessing, but part of that came from the fact that, you know, I think there were that diversity really paid off for us uh, during that time. But um, yeah, no question. And it's, you know, it's fun working on different stuff every day. I mean, you just don't ever know what you're going to get. Like I said, it's, 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 that's fantastic. And there's great music in every genre. I mean, just amazing productions in every genre. So um, it's absolutely worth it. For sure. And it kind of goes back to what you also said about the idea of you're just trying to make the song sound better. So even if you aren't a fan of the song with mastering, you can still have fun with that challenge of making it sound better, right? There's very few things that I just don't work on. You know, there's a, there's a couple of types of music that I just don't work on. I'll pass on when they call me up. Um, but I mean, it's like at this point, if you look at my client list, if you're that artist, you're not going to be like, oh, I'm going to use this guy because nobody on that client list is like your <laughs> your music. <laughs> but it's it's pretty. It, there's there's only a couple of uh, types of things that I just don't like working on. I don't you know I don't appreciate them. Or, so. Yeah, I mean, hey, ideally you want to be working on music you love all the time. But and if you have that, if you have that luxury of being able to say no to projects to take on something that you like more, then of course do it, right? So I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about your mastering process and just kind of just generally your your approach to to how you work on these songs. When you're starting with a mastering project, how do you typically set up your sessions? Like, what what are you? I know some people like to master all their songs in one session. Some people do it individually. Like, where, what what do you start with there? So, um, I've kind of modified that over the years. I used to go through years ago and for many years I worked where I would take each song one by one and, and, 
preferably in sequence. And I would work in that sequence. So it was the final sequence. And I would listen to them, play with them, you know, make, take notes all the way through and then go back and basically do it again. But this time printing all the, all the mixes as it went down. But then I had an idea of what the whole album felt like. Um, of course that was back in the day when most of the masters came in on that tape or, or analog tape, um, or some on CDR. Now, since most everything comes in as files, it's really easy to just drag and drop them into the, the EDL or the, you know, the edit window and bounce around and just kind of give a listen and see what, what the overall feel is. Um, cause if you just start on track one and you don't listen to you know, tracks two through 10, uh, it could very well be the track one is the anomaly and it's the outlier. It doesn't sound anything like the other ones. And so you spend 30 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever on that track and you get to track two and you're like, Oh, that's weird. And before you know it, you're back remastering track one. So I like to bounce around and just kind of get a feel for what the album feels like. Um, but I also don't like to listen to it too much. Um, a lot of times clients will ask me, hey, you know, I'm going to send you some mixes so you can hear them, you know, before the session. And I always tell them, I, I will listen to them if you need some feedback, like if you're worried about something. Otherwise, I don't like to do that. Um, Denny Purcell, um, I guess he passed about 21 years ago now. Um, he was one of my the guys that I just really looked up to in Nashville, an amazing master engineer. And uh, he had one time when I was hanging with him, he said to me, he goes, you, know, you can only hear it for the first time once. And, um, that applied, he was kind of talking at that point in the context of like A&R guys and so on and so forth and how you wanted to make sure that stuff sounded as good as it could. So that when, uh, or like a radio guy heard it, um, he would immediately be impressed by it and not like, you know, it didn't have to grow on him, but it also works really well in the context of mastering. Um, because that first time you hear it, that gut reaction that I have is really, really important. Like it's to this, there's too much that I'm making these mental notes about, you know, where the nips and tucks need to happen, so to speak. Um, so that's really, really, so I try to listen to stuff at all before I'm actually working on it. And then as I bounce through the tracks, I like just trying to get a little inventory very quickly of what it's, what each song feels like, but not listen to it very much so that when I'm working on it, I'm hearing it kind of for the first time. Um, but then I just go through song by song. I like to work in order um, as much as possible because, um, you know, sometimes I know not everybody listens to music that way. They're shuffle mode and that sort of a thing. But if you're, if you, if you know the sequence, you can kind of tailor the overall response, you know, that way. So it, the album could get a little brighter in the middle and a little darker as it goes on, because that's the way the mixes sound best. Whereas if they were all randomized, you maybe wouldn't master them that way. Um, so I like to work in sequence and then, you know, start at the top and go from there and, and make them sound good. I love that. And I, I definitely agree with that. Like you kind of have to, yeah, you can't just start working on song one without having listened to anything else. Cause you don't really know anything. Uh, and, and I do like the idea of like creating that kind of like that story arc or whatever you want to call it of, of the album, you know, yeah. but, um, but I, but I think, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, it's, it's good to at least have a sense of the rest of the album. And then, yeah, when you put them all together, you can definitely create that consistency from song to song and, and make, make it have that, uh, that consistent thing. Cause yeah, I mean, most people are listening to singles these days, but there are still the people that listen to albums and you have to, you have to be making records for those people, right? It's kind of, it's kind of like what you said about, you know, the hi-fi people and, you know, like maybe less people are listening that way, but that's kind of part of your job as a mastering engineer is to make sure that whatever you're listening to, it's going to work, right? So however that, however that listening experience is for the other people, like you have to create that, you have to create something that works for them, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not going to be mastering on earbuds anytime soon. I mean, that's how most people may listen, <laughs> but that's not how I'm going to master it, you know? <laughs> well, 
Well, I'm, I'm curious. I, I'm curious to know that, like, you know, I, I have heard people that have implemented earbuds into their process just to at least have like as a second set of monitors. But I guess you're not really worried too worried about that. <laughs> I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary. I mean, even even the not great Apple, you know, earbuds that come with the phone, for example. I mean, they're still they're still fine. I mean, they they're they're they give you better response than most speakers in a room would from generations past. So, I mean, it, it's, yeah, I mean, could it, could you tweak it a little bit, but do you want to tweak it for that? So then the guy with a really nice rig and a nice room doesn't get to hear it as good as it could be. You know, I mean, I have some AirPod maxes for Atmos stuff because that's actually, you have to listen like that because that's how probably 99% of people are hearing spatial audio. But um, yeah, other than that, I don't reference on headphones at all. I just like headphones. Yeah. And it's kind of funny, too, because a lot of those what we would call like cheap headphones these days are like those like the ones that come with your phone. Like they're actually significantly better than they used to be. You know, like you know, when, you, when you got a Walkman like in the 90s or whatever, you know, the, what, the speakers that came with those are horrible. <laughs> or, yeah, or like you get some Sirwin Vegas in the dude's den from 1988. It's like, you know, it's going to sound a lot better than that because, I mean, the reality is the room's a mess and there's all these acoustic problems and things like that. And the speakers themselves weren't amazing. These, at least you have them like right on your ears. So there's no interference with the room or anything they have a little more control over that so yeah yeah they're not horrible <laughs> so then once you've listened to the song and you kind of or to the, to the album and you start working from song one and, and work in sequence do you have a typical process or like a workflow that you'd like to follow beyond that like do you typically kind of apply your processing in a certain order or like what what does that look like from from that next level I think I generally just do what needs to be done first. Like whatever strikes me first, that, that gut reaction, like I said, like, wow, the mid range is really honky or there's too much muddiness in the, in the lower mids or it's too, too dark. Or I'll try to address those things. I, I go for, I want to go for an even frequency balance. Um, once I get it close, I think it's getting close. Then I usually start looking at loudness where it needs to be where, where they want it, which is a huge moving scale right now. Um, but some guys still want it just blisteringly hot. So I work to get that and then you know work out the kinks to get there as well as making it sound as good as it can and so on and so forth. Um, with streaming services, the way they're all now, um, they've all kind of quasi standardized, um, you know, what they're doing there that makes it a, a makes it weird. Okay. Now we don't have to be so loud anymore, you know, unless they just want it that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, I generally start off trying to get it pretty even and trying to handle the problems. And then from there, just kind of, you know, take it wherever it needs to go. For sure. And it's interesting too, about the idea of loudness. And you'd, you'd mentioned that like a lot of these streaming services are starting to get closer and closer to having kind of a standard to some degree, but you know, what, what are you typically aiming for as far as levels? You know, if, if someone wasn't telling you where they were going to stream it, like what, what would you normally go to? Like what would be your target area that you would go for? Well, I mean, I assume everyone's going to stream it. Um, I mean, that's just how everybody delivers music nowadays. I mean, and there's, it's probably half the clients. If that actually order DDPs for CD manufacturing anymore. I mean, it's just hardly anybody makes CDs. It seems like I think anywhere from, if you're, if you're looking measuring luffs, like they generally do for Spotify and Apple music and, and Amazon and so on and so forth. I, you know, I generally shoot for somewhere around minus eight, minus 10. I know that it's still going to get turned down. Um, but you're not sacrificing, um, Generally speaking, you're not sacrificing audio quality so much to get it that loud. But then at the same time, if they 
they're listening back and they have sound check or whatever turned off and they hear the last, you know, whatever record that's big and loud. And this one, it won't sound so soft and quiet and weak next to it. Um, if it's a, like a label, sometimes we'll tell you, Hey, we're going to, we need a streaming master. We need this master. Well, then you can dedicate masters specifically for that. Cause they have people that are not going to screw that up on generally I'm not going to screw that up on their end. <laughs> so you give them a, a, a streaming master just for that. You give them a master just for CD, just for vinyl, so on and so forth. And they will distribute that accordingly and, and hopefully get it right. Yeah. Do you find yourself often making multiple masters? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Most of the work is label work that we do, uh, that I do here. So, I mean, and labels are almost always doing that. But even most of my independent clients are doing like vinyl and streaming or like there's always some sort of streaming component or digital distribution component. And then usually there's something on top of that. There's whether they're doing CDs or vinyl or something like that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the idea of like DDPs and you know, some people are still so, still making CDs, obviously. So are you making separate CD masters from the ones that would go onto the streaming platforms? Or like, are you trying to make, it, it can you usually get away with one unless it's like something that's spe- specified that they need something different? Uh, well, like I said, typically for the streaming masters, I would go probably a little, probably go a little quieter than I would for a CD master. It's it really, it's hard to to give an answer as a one size fits all, because it really depends on the client and what they're going for. I mean, some of the most surprising clients have wanted it really, really, really loud um, that I wouldn't have thought going into it, that they were the ones that wanted that. And some of them that I would have expected wanted it just, you know, peeling the wallpaper off the walls, weren't concerned about level at all with regards to like the, the CD. So it really depends. It's client to client, but um, I would typically have a different streaming master than I would one for a CD. If for no other reason, than just to give it a little more headroom um, so that the codec doesn't, you know, just crap itself with the really loud levels that you can, that you end up printing on CDs. Fair. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, it, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier about mixing from the gut, you know, h- how long do you find it typically takes you to, to master a song? Are you, are you working like really fast just to kind of retain a lot of that gut information? Yeah. So efficiency and speed are like a big deal to me. They always have been because I really feel like the longer that I'm exposed to it, the more likely I am to, um, to, to think it sounds normal or good and not recognize the issues that I need to address. Um, so I do like to work fast as fast as I can without cutting any corners. Um, that said, there's also an efficiency that comes with You've been in the same, this room, for example, I've been in since April of 07. So what, you know, uh, 15 years now, um, you know, it's like, I know very quickly how much I can do and where I've hit the wall. And that's, you know, if it's a really bad or it's mediocre or it's really good, the mix, um, there's only so much that can be done, whether I spend 10 minutes on it or two hours on it. I can make it different, but it's not going to get better after a certain point. So typically, if I'm doing a single, you're probably looking at about anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. Um, on an album, it probably starts off, this, the first song would be like a single, and then it gets quicker as the album goes along, especially if there's you know, uh, a band playing in the same studio, recorded you know by the same engineer, mixed by the same guy. There's like inherent consistency built into that. And yes, there'll be some changes along the way, of course, but I mean, it, it gets pretty quick. And so you may find out, I may find that I start off spending 
20, 25 minutes on the first track. And by the time I get to tracks eight, nine, and 10, they're, you know, I listen through it twice and I print it, you know, so it's like 10, 15 minutes and it's done. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, so typical album could be three to five hours, you know? I love that. I think there's some people that are going to hear that answer and be like shocked, you know, but, but at the same time, it, it's, it kind of, it goes back to what you said again earlier about why you're hiring a mastering engineer and why you're hiring someone for that third party objective opinion, because I guarantee that the people that have issue with what you just said are the people that are overanalyzing their tracks. And then, you know, they're like, I'm going to master my own songs. And they're spending hours and hours and hours like working on mastering their track because they've lost all objectivity. So, you know, that's why like you get a, you hire a mastering engineer, you're hiring someone that has that experience and that knows the room and knows their equipment really well. And that can get you a high quality result in a short period of time because that they're giving you their gut gut reaction to it. They're giving you that all, all that experience in the really condensed period of time, but it, it works because you know what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, like I can go out, I can watch a YouTube video on how to do a repair on one of my vehicles. Um, and I can do that repair and, and I can do it well and do it as well as anybody on the planet, let's say. And it might take me three and a half hours to do it beginning to end. And then I take, the vehicle to the shop and the guy that's been doing this for 25 years can do it in an hour tops, you know, cause he's done this so many times. He knows exactly what tools he needs. He knows exactly how much torque's required. I mean, he, and he can just do this in his sleep because he's done it hundreds of times. It's the same sort of thing. It's like, um, it just doesn't require a lot of time if you've done it over and over again, you know, there's a certain amount of time. that's obviously built into it. If you're, you have to listen down to it. If it's a seven minute track, it's, you're, it's, you're not going to master it super quickly because every listen is going to be bad. But I mean, um, you know, but the reality is, yeah, it's just, it, it, you know, for the most part, that's probably on average, you know? Yeah. I, I love that. So, so how do you know then when you're done with mastering a song? Um, what? Like, it's that answer. I hate <laughs> lots of years of, of doing this. I think, I mean, it's like years ago, I would question and question and question, you know, and I would, is it, can I, and I would, I would get to a point where I thought it was done and I would start just futzing with it. Like, well, maybe if I add a little more of this, or maybe if I do a little bit of that. And when you do that, you hear, okay, well, the negative that goes along with that positive isn't worth it, you know, and this, and, you know, eventually I'd circle back and find out, okay, I, my gut was right. Um, the other way that it gets confirmed pretty regularly is with revisions. I don't do a lot of revisions, but there are some clients that'll come back and they'll we'll do three or four rounds of revisions sometimes, you know, like, can we tweak this? Can we do this? Can we do that? And I bet at least half the time we come back and go, yeah, we're going to go with version one, the first one you did, you know, because they, they heard it. They wanted to do this. They wanted to do that. But, you know, I got it really as good as it was going to get. And it may be fantastic. I'm not saying that that's a compromise, but I mean, it's just after a while, you kind of know what you can address and what you can't address. And I can't worry about the stuff that I, I can't worry about the intonation of the guitar. I mean, there's just nothing I can do about that. So, <laughs> you know, I just ignore it and move on and they can't bother me, you know? Yeah, fair. So to kind of tie along with that question, in your opinion, what makes a great master? Um, really, generally speaking, I would say really nice full band, even frequency response, um, enough dynamics that it's um, punchy where it needs to be. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it moves a little bit. Um, uh, judicious use of compression just to make things feel the way you want them to. Uh, to me, compression is really generally more of a color thing than it is a dynamics thing. Um, a, a lot, a lot of that's because most stuff that comes in now is really compressed across the board, not necessarily over compressed, but it's just 
everything's already compressed. It doesn't really need dynamic uh, control. Um, yeah, I, I would say just something that really sounds balanced, doesn't have stuff sticking out and isn't too loud, but also isn't, you know, isn't too dynamic. And just, there's a little window there of dynamics. I think that feels really good for, for different genres of music. That's a different window, but I mean, get in that window and get the frequency response. Even the frequency response is probably the, 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 the biggest thing. If you can get a really even balance top to bottom, you know, that sounds good. That's, that's going to solve most of your problems right there. Of course. Yeah. And I think that that's a pretty good summary, too, of what people should be looking for when hiring a mastering engineer, because obviously, if you're in a session, you can hear the AB, you can hear the difference of like, you know, where it started and where a mastering engineer took it. But most people are just listening to songs of their favorite artists, and they don't really know what was done by the mixing engineer versus the mastering engineer. So, you know, as far as finding a, a mastering engineer that that is going to work perfectly for your project, um, I think what you said there is probably a good gauge of whether or not someone's going to get you a good result, you know, just, you know, is it, are you going to get that full frequency balance? Is it going to sound good? Does it translate all all of those things? Right. Yeah. I mean, cause I mean, ultimately that's all that we have control over. And even that's limited, obviously if somebody gives me something and there's, they've put a, you know, high pass filter at a hundred Hertz. There's, there's no going back. I can't like make bottom end just happen magically, but um yeah, I mean, I think after a while, the body of work speaks for itself, and you can listen to something, and and you can hear that, hey, this album is a little bit bright, that one's a little bit dark, this one, so on and so forth, and you never know if that's, was that the artist that insisted upon that, or what, was that just the way the guy felt about this album that day, or what, but overall, I think you you can see a pattern emerge of like, oh yeah, this stuff always just has a nice, you know, even response, for example, and it, you know, the things feel good, and the, the drums are still punchy, even if it's loud, or, or whatever, whatever you're looking for find that engineer that seems to have a lot of stuff that that ticks off those same boxes for sure as far as creativity while mastering do you feel like mastering is a pretty creative role or do you feel like it's kind of just like a standard that you're shooting for and there's no room to like experiment and be super creative with it um i kind of struggle with this honestly uh i don't i don't consider it a a really creative process i think the creativity obviously happens in the recording studio and even in the mixing studio. Um, cause there's a lot more moving parts and you have a lot more control over once we get it. I mean, the cake is baked, you know, it's like, we don't have any control over the ingredients anymore. It's just like, I'm like handling the icing, let's say the frosting. Um, so there's, I, I feel like there's some in that depending on what the artist is going for. Um, and that kind of goes back to what do you, what do you, maybe feel like you're known for, or what do you shoot for are you a subtlety or just a, Hey, let's go crazy with it. I generally lean towards, like I said, subtlety. I, I want, I want the mixer to call up and say, or send me an email and be like, dude, this is amazing. It sounds just like my mix, but it's better. And that's to me, that's like I said, the greatest compliment because I didn't alter it unnecessarily. I just highlighted the stuff that he was trying to highlight or she was trying to highlight. And maybe they, they didn't quite get it there. Um, I, I suppose that you could argue that takes some level of creativity. I just don't really think of it that way. Probably because everybody I know that works as a recording and mix engineer, they're way more creative than I am. So it's really hard for me to kind of think of myself in the same terms of that. So I'm not trying to put master engineers down. I'm not saying that nobody's creative. I just don't feel like in the, of the three main roles or recording, uh, mixing and mastering that this is the one that someone would think was creative. For sure. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I don't I don't think I've ever heard of like the equivalent of like a Sylvia Massey in the mastering world, you know, who's like running stuff through 
pickles and you know, doing all sorts of creative techniques, right? <laughs> I mean, there's probably guys out there doing that. I just don't, I don't, I think that there, there comes a, I think it depends on who you want to be or what you want your, what you want to be in the industry. Because if you look at the top, whatever, 20, 30, 50, probably mastering guys out there, however you'd rank that. But if you did that, you'd probably find that their workflow and their studios and on and on are all pretty similar. There's sort of a, you know, yeah, different colors, you know, maybe different studio designers, different speakers, that, that kind of a thing. But I mean, overall, the layout of the room, so on and so forth, generally speaking, that's been refined to the point that everybody, everybody kind of knows what to do, you know? And so I think that for the most part, you're going to find that most guys would probably fall into the same sort of pattern for that reason, because it's the most efficient way to do it. You know, um, there are some guys that have changed things up and done things differently. Uh, I'm one of those guys, I think, because um, kind of the reason why this sits the way it does in here in my room is, you know, my console's behind me, not in front of me anymore. Uh, I spent about a year playing with that, seeing if that was going to be better or worse, taking the console out of the way between me and the speakers. Um, and I really, really liked it. And I, hes- I was hesitant to do that because I thought, man, I'd, that just seems weird. I mean, he does that. Nobody else does that. And then it hit me one day. I was just sitting there. I forgot. I mean, yeah, I don't. I remember what I, I don't remember what I was doing because I was working that way and I loved it. I just feel I, like there's no distortions, like between nothing distorting the signal between me and the speakers. Uh, what struck me was I thought, oh wow, two of my favorite master engineers ever worked that way. It was Denny Purcell, as I mentioned earlier, and Doug Sachs. I was like, well, okay, if those guys do it and or did it and loved it, then you know, there maybe there's something to this. And I've been working that way now for a couple of years and. I love it, or maybe not a couple of years, probably a little over a year, and just absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. You know, the, the room response is, it feels, it, it's it, as, as good, if not better than it was measured. And now it just, I can, at first I thought it'd be subtle enough that I'd be like, oh, I don't know, because I've got a good desk, Sterling Modular Desk. It's not, it doesn't have a huge acoustic footprint, but flipping it around behind me, I talked to my acoustician. We, we spoke on the phone about it for a while, and, and Thomas was very, very like, Hey, give it a shot. It should sound great. And sure enough, it just, it was, it's remarkable. I was more than I thought it was going to be. That's very fascinating. Cause it's, yeah, you're, you're kind of approaching it even more as a listener rather than being the engineer. Well, what's happened is that, you know, as an efficiency freak, it's kind of, it's kind of worked against me because now as a, you know, when I'm doing an analog session, I'll flip around, just spin around in the chair, make a tweak, flip back around, flip back. You know, it's like, it's not as quick as efficient uh as i used to be in that regard um but it i find that i i can hear more accurately and it feels like i can get there just as quick because i'm i'm not having to futz around i can i know exactly what i'm hearing exactly how to get there and it just i don't know it feels natural it feels like that's the way we should be working you know that's amazing i i've never i've I've never seen anyone do that before but it kind of it makes sense that, that that would give you a much better, more realistic experience with it. Yeah, it sounds great. I, I imagine, yeah, if you are running a lot of analog gear, then, yeah, it's a little bit of a pain to constantly turn around and have the stereo imaging flip a little bit on you. But maybe that doesn't matter as much to you anymore, you know? Well, you get used to it. You know, I like it. Like it took a while. And that was one of my concerns. And, you know, the other concern was, well, the room was designed with the concept of this console kind of being there. Was that going to screw it up? And that was hence the conversation with Thomas. But um, once we got past that and I I knew that wasn't going to be a problem, it was like, well, let's let's see what happens. And I was I was kind of I was really surprised, actually, at how much it felt like a veil had been lifted. Uh, 
when I first fired up the speakers after doing that, it was like, wow, okay, this is right. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure it out one way or the other, you know? <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of like, I've seen with technology, like live sound guys have now been mixing on iPads and like, they can go to like the center of the room and mix there. Right. Like I, I imagine that with probably as, as plugins and all this stuff gets better and better, like we're going to start to see more of that kind of thing in the mastering world where, yeah, you could just be sitting down with like an iPad in front of you instead of having a big desk and it'd be very similar. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm a hybrid guy. So some stuff is analog, some stuff stays completely digital. Some stuff is it's both, you know, in fact, it, there's never anything that's all analog, but I mean, it's the, I, I do a little bit of both all in the way. Um, when I'm doing Atmos stuff, I'm almost always fully digital. And that's fantastic because now there's just nothing. It's the speakers are all, you know, unimpeded and there's nothing, they're not bouncing off stuff and all this kind of stuff. And it's it just, it really does sound good. It's really amazing. That's very, very cool. Now, man, now you got me wanting to flip around my room here. <laughs> <laughs> try it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to try it out. I, well, I, I'm, I'm gonna be moving soon, so I'm gonna have a brand new room, and I'll, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely try that out. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Um, as far as pe people submitting files to you and preparing for mastering, like, what are some of the biggest problems that you typically see when you're mastering? Like, what can things? What are what are the things that people should be looking out for in their own mixes before sending it to you to to make your life easier? Um, I tell guys do whatever they want to do to make it sound good. Uh, I, I generally ask them to, if they're using mixing through like a digital limiter or something, um, to send mixes that have the limiter and then maybe disable the limiter and send mixes without it. Because sometimes stuff comes through and looks like a block of cheese before I even get started on it. That really ties your hands, you know, uh, with processing and such. Um, I tell guys it's really, uh, it's, they shouldn't top and tail their mixes. Like don't try to like get the get fade the get the front end of the fade right up to the first downbeat or whatever else. Uh, just just leave it. I mean that's part of the gig. We do that all day every day. It takes two seconds. But a lot of guys will cut it too short. Like they they the room to, they don't hear it in the room or whatever. And then you load it in and you're ready to go and you hit play and it just sounds like it's something's been cut off or something. It doesn't doesn't it doesn't breathe like it should right before the downbeat or whatever. Um, so topping and tailing, just leave that to us. So there's no reason to do that. Um, but yeah, make it sound good. Don't don't stress about it. Don't whatever you want on the stereo bus. I don't care. Um, you know, if it sounds great and it gets you there, do it. We're not we're not saving lives here. We're trying to make art. So um, yeah, the only the only caveat I give guys is hey, let's let's not uh, let's not if you're going to do a digital limiter which I know guys do that for a reason, at least give me a mix that doesn't have it. Cause if, if I get into it, I'll try to use the limited version, you know, sometimes, but sometimes it's just unusable when you start using it and you start getting into weird uh, distortions and stuff that really don't have to be there, you know? Yeah. And when you're talking about digital limiters, are you talking about people that are actually like limiting heavily or like, oh, just yeah. like, okay. Some people just put it on. So it's like not going to go above like zero point minus one or whatever. Right. Yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. No, I'm talking about guys that'll do it. And they'll, that's why I said the block of cheese, they'll send these very loud mixes in um, because they're, they're trying to listen to their mixes as if it's done so that they can hear it next to that rock record that they're, they're emulating, you know, there's not this, you know, 11 DB jump in volume or something. So they're getting it loud and they're listening to it and they're working that way. But a lot of times if you're mixing through that, you are actually doing things differently. So like you may push the snare or let the snare be a little more transient because that limiter is clamping down on it and it still feels great. And as soon as you pull that limiter off, suddenly the snare is just jumping out of the, you know, jumping out of the speakers at you. Um, and if I don't have the exact same limiter and the same settings, it may not clamp it down in the same way. So it may not work. 
work. So that's why I say, well, send it to me that way. And then send it to me with the limiter bypass if you've got a loud thing. And then if, I'll see if I can get it there and, and get the same thing that you're trying to get, you know, balance wise. Um, but if I can't, then yeah, I'll just try using the limited version. Yeah. And if people are comparing their songs to another commercial song, then just turn those commercial songs down. Well, that's that's the obvious solution. But I mean, that's, you know, it, it's obvious, but so many people don't do it. Right. Well, because they want to they want to just like have their CD player plugged into their to their, you know, whatever their monitor controller and just go back and forth. And, you know, I guess depending on your monitor controller, you can absolutely turn that down. But, you know, most of them probably don't. They're just lying in and they just flip back and forth. And so that's the obvious solution to them. But um and, you know, there's a lot of high-profile mixers that do that as well. And they'll send out Excel mixes or something like that because as the, the artist gets it, even really, really well-known artists, they'll get it and listen to it and be like, well, it just sounds thin and weak. You know, they're not re- realizing that, hey, it's not done yet. This is just listen, you know, turn it up and listen to it. But so there's guys that'll do that. You know, a lot of high-profile guys do that as well. For sure. Yeah, a mix isn't supposed to sound like the the final loudness and all that stuff of a final master. Yeah, it, it there is that last step that is supposed to happen. So you know, people don't have to worry about their levels so much in that early stage. And um, yeah, I would say that like you you were talking about monitor controllers. Another another great solution for just the the volume matching is um, there's a great plugin that you can get on Plugin Alliance. It's called uh, I think it's called Metric AB. Uh, and uh, it, it's a great plugin. You can just like drop a whole bunch of reference tracks in there and it, it, we, it you just press a button and it matches the volume of those reference tracks against your current mix level. So, oh, that's you know, cool. so it makes it super easy to just like make sure that you're listening to everything on par and, you know, it's it's sounding sounding similar. And that's a it's a, it's a great tool. And even hey, you even get the graphs and stuff like that, the frequency graphs. So you can see like, you know, your mix is missing the low end or that kind of thing. So um, just ways to, to ways for people to get a little closer to to those final results with slamming the crap out of the levels there are so many really cool digital tools now that are available that can be used to help people out that i wish had been around 25 years ago when i was getting started yeah that would have made my my learning curve a whole (laughs) lot easier i think um but yeah that sounds like a cool really cool yeah it's it's definitely really handy well brad thank you so much for taking the time to do this and i don't want to take up too much more of your time if anyone wants to learn more about you your studio or even possibly work with you what's what's the best place for them to do that uh, probably just you go to the website, euphonicmasters.com, E-U-P-H-O-N-I-C masters.com. You can probably just Google me and that'll probably come up. Um, I'm on Facebook uh, and Insta, both as me and Euphonic Masters. You can reach out to either any of those. Um, just I'm, I'm pretty open on social media. So uh, either directly at Euphonic Masters or via social media, reach out to me and we'll, we'll connect. So that was my interview with Brad Blackwood. And I found that conversation very interesting. I love how he really focused on the idea of mixing from the gut and how you don't want to be listening to your music over and over and over again and wasting a lot of time. Instead, you really want to preserve that gut instinct when it comes to working on your songs. And that's definitely a big part of why he's able to make masters in 15 minutes. And, you know, I think that that really speaks to the idea of really just trusting your gut and how much of an impact can be made when you just lean into that gut feeling and you go based off of those decisions rather than getting super analytical and nitpicky with all of your tracks. So that's definitely something to consider next time you're working on your music. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And definitely make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out home studio musicians with creating pro quality recordings from home. 
And on the website, I've got a ton of great resources for you to check out, one of which is called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I put out that breaks down the entire process of mixing your tracks from beginning to end, showing you what to listen for, what tools to use, what steps to be following, all that kind of stuff. And it's going to allow you to have a lot of clarity and focus as you work on your tracks. So definitely make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that is available at MasterYourMix.com. So with that said, we've reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.